Welcome to Between Data and Risk podcast. Today, we'll be discussing scaling innovation and achieving breakthroughs. To give us a practical illustration of how scale can be achieved and what benefits it brings, we have invited Ross Youngs, founder and CEO of Biosortia. Stay tuned. If you're a business owner or senior manager, you probably had more than enough about all the wonderful opportunities awaiting you in the era of digitalization. Whether it is big data, cloud, data science, or whatever buzzword is currently trendy. If you would like to hear someone dissecting these claims and showing you what it actually takes to improve business processes, you're in the right place. This is Between Data and Risk, where we discuss real-life examples of what works and what doesn't in the world of business operations. Hi, I'm your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and with me is my co-host, Artur Guja, Cognition Shared Solutions Chief Risk and Strategy Officer. Hello. Welcome to this episode of Between Data and Risk. Today, we will be talking about growth and scaling. We are very excited to have with us our guest from Biosortia, Biosortia Pharmaceuticals, uh, Ross Youngs, its CEO, who agreed to share some of his experience with us. Thank you. For those of our listeners who are not experts in life sciences, can you please give a quick overview of the particular problem you're working on and explain what is the magnitude of the scaling issue involved? Terrific. So when we look at life sciences, it's all about discovering products, whether it's in therapeutics or agrochemical, cosmetics, advanced energy, sustainability. So having the products matters. Products themselves can be small molecules, which are signaling molecules for turning things on, off, up, or down. Think about drugs in therapeutics. Drugs are 90% small molecules. Problem is finding the next drug or agrochemical product. That's a big deal, and life sciences is based on trying to solve that problem. The challenge has been getting at the hidden secrets of the chemical ex signaling that already exists in nature. That kind of signaling exists in such minute quantities, but yet it's very, very powerful. For example, there are tens of thousands of small molecules made by our gut microbes, our gut microbiome, this science knows nothing about. And as of today, they've only identified and characterized 140 of those tens of thousands of molecules. And the gut microbiome makes up 90% of those small molecules in your blood, meaning things are getting turned on, off, up, or down. Could it be involved with neurodegenerative diseases? Could it be involved with metabolic diseases, inflammation, uh, infectious diseases? It's involved in all of it. Just to, just to maybe bring some numbers to light. Sorry, I'm the data guy. Uh, if I remember correctly, a couple of years ago, 
the cost of developing a new drug with all the research, but also the um, clinical trials and stuff, it was a billion dollars, if I remember correctly. I think recently it grew to two, two billion and this growth was pretty rapid. Yes. So in, 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 in terms of uh, the scale of money involved, I think it gives a pretty good good overview of uh, yeah of the of the of the problem. Uh, ident- being able to identify and reduce the number of trials that you need to run can save you well two billion per. Yes, uh, there is no doubt about the cost of developing a drug and even discovering a drug has gone up. So some of the numbers that are suggested today are around two point eight billion dollars with nearly 500 million in discovery. And part of that problem is science has not had direct, deep access to those hidden signaling molecules that already exist in nature. So we've had to go out there and try to find them using technologies that are indirect. Indirect technologies has driven up the cost of drug discovery and development, 300% in 10 years. It also reminds me what you say about finding stuff that is out there, just, you know, waiting for for, for discovery. I think a couple of years ago, there was a Nobel Prize um, for the lady who was testing traditional Chinese medicine and she found some uh, malaria-related drug. And there was a Nobel Prize for, for actually scientifically testing the contents of uh, herbs used in traditional medicine. So uh, it's not like it's something which is, which is very magical, so to speak. Uh, but this, these drugs are out there. It's, it's just, it's, just the, 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 it's the fact. It's just we need better technology to, to, to actually dig them out of. <clears throat> when we are talking about the gut microbe out of what would we be digging them? Well, that's a good point. So when we think about natural products, what nature has made, which are some of the absolute best drugs on the planet or best drug starting points, a lot of that has come from plants and a lot of it, in fact, a huge percentage from microbes you could culture. Think back to uh, penicillin. It came from a fungus that could be cultured. Believe it or not, 50% of the drugs on the shelf today, directly, indirectly, or inspirationally, come from culturable microbes. But less than 1% of the microbes on the planet can be grown in culture. That has left invisible the other 99%. And that other 99%, we are here to say to the entire scientific community, can be directly accessed, not indirectly accessed. And that is all about scale. So, uh, you know, if if we, if we don't want to kind of take every every random herb and every every random microbe and and start you know looking one by one because that that would be inefficient there has to be some process to scale this this search scale this discovery so to shift through them quickly uh, and get some some i don't know indicators where to look so if i if i understand correctly i'm i'm not 
I, I finished biology in high school. I'm a risk guy. Uh, so you have some process that allows to scale this, this search and, and make it more efficient. Exactly. But it's complicated in connecting the dots. So I'll try to connect the dots really quickly. Remember what I said earlier in this broadcast about the gut microbiome. The gut mm -hmm. microbiome makes up 90% of the small molecules in the human's blood. That represents between 400 and 1,000 active species that are in our digestive system. That represents 25 million genes. Believe it or not, the gut microbiome outnumbers the human uh, cells. We're talking 40 trillion microbes in the human versus 30 trillion cells. And we've all heard about the genomics of a human, 23,000 genes. I just said your gut microbiome has 25 million genes. But even with it outnumbering it, it weighs very little. Microbes are small. So if you collected a gut microbiome from a human completely intact and then dried it, you might have 100 grams, which is not a lot. We're talking three ounces, four ounces, essentially. The reality of it is the, the chemicals that are in there are in there at such minute quantities that even if you had a whole human gut microbiome and started to measure what was there, the vast, vast majority of the small molecules in there are unidentified. No one knows what they are, and you don't have enough quantity to figure them out, even if you can read them. That's the scale. One human's not enough. Believe it or not, 10,000 human gut microbiomes collected properly and carefully, quantity and quality, might not be enough. So when we talk about a scaling issue, this is a big scaling issue that people that work at benches in laboratories don't even comprehend that kind of scale. So it's about a surrogate connection. Where is microbiomes that relate to the human gut in the natural world? Everywhere. Believe it or not, a scientific study that took years called the Terra Ocean Project proved that the human gut microbiome overlaps the microbiome in the aquatic environment. Think of the marine, think of the ocean, by 73% in genes and metabolic pathways. That means out there in the world are microbiomes that can be captured at unheard of scale if you have the right technology and can do it in quantity and quality. So a typical lab volume might be 100 milliliters. What Biosortia does is we go to that aquatic environment and we collect 200 million times this quantity. 200 million times allows us to process, 
concentrate, get rid of the water, keep nothing but those 400 to 1,000 species of microbes that have overlapping chemistry to our own gut. And then we can actually get to just the small molecules. And then we can separate the small molecules. Now we can test them. Not only physically test them against screens and assays, we can computationally test them. Meaning we can look at these molecules and say, what is it like out there of what we know? The problem is even with machine learning and AI, science knows very little. There's only 19,000 approved drugs and there's only 25,000 known species of microbes that have been interrogated enough to understand what they do. So the, the reality of it is, is we don't know a lot, but with scale, we can accelerate the knowledge to the degree that quite frankly, using the microbiome and its hidden secrets, we might be able to come up with new products for every life science industry. I can so say, it, well, <laughs> it is. It is the, the the numbers are really impressive. But I'm 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 thinking you're you're casting your net so widely, uh, you know, so broadly that uh, there there has to be a a, a kind of a, a sieve that you you put it through before you concentrate on the few winners, right? So uh, I'm I'm thinking in the in terms of uh, you know that the technology that maybe not technologies but techniques that are are used uh, in in general you know you uh, in ideation where you 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 cast the net you you gather all the ideas and then you 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 filter out so how how do you decide what is then worth pursuing further? No, that's an excellent question. So the nice part is we have the genes of a human. And we have the genes of the human gut microbiome we can look at. We also have the genes of the microbiome we might want to interrogate. We also have the preliminary chemistry of the microbiome we might want to interrogate. So we scout microbiomes looking for overlap, looking for opportunities. When we find a microbiome in the aquatic environment, and what makes the aquatic environment brilliant is the diversity of habitats. Think about it. You've got different temperatures. You've got different oxygen content. You've got different pHs. You've got different sunlight. You've got different nutrients. You've got different salinity. I can go on and on. The reality of it is it is the best soup for growing microbes anywhere on the world. And that's the beautiful part is we have got this untapped source of chemical inspiration for next generation products that represent more genes that have been untapped and genes ultimately convert to metabolic pathways, metabolic pathways ultimately con convert to the molecules. We just go at it differently than everybody else in the world. Everyone else goes from the genes, to the metabolic pathways and then get stymied because they can't figure out what the molecules are. We go get the molecules. We have the genes in the metabolic pathways. Then we find out the activity of the molecule. 
all of a sudden we filled in the data map that is critical to making efficient and effective decisions. That's why BioSortia is going to be so impactful. It's bringing a technology of acquiring microbiomes and exploring microbiomes at a scale and quality that's never existed on the planet. I just want to make a disclaimer. Uh, Mr. Youngs is not in cohorts with us because we have our, our product, which we call Trilayer Business Process Analysis, where we talk about decisions which we infuse with data to, to enable them. What you said, it sounds exactly like a sales pitch of our product. So just to, I, I, make a, I, I would like to make a discla disclaimer. It's just, uh, there is a chance that it's just approach, which makes sense and, uh, you know, great minds <laughs> and these things. Uh, but uh, let me ask you about these decisions, because as I said, we are very, very fo decision-focused uh, uh, in our work. Uh, when you are talking about the, the scaling, you still have limited team. You need to make decisions uh, about, you know, wh what of parts of this diversity of habitats to to chase, uh, because it's when you already found the proper, I don't know, cave in the under, under you know, in the in the sea. Uh, uh, and where you can, you know, hunt for these microbes. Like, uh, how do you scale your your operations? Because it's still a gigantic work for a, for for a single company to uh, work, as you said, on incomprehensible scale. If it makes sense, do they make sense? It it, it makes perfect mm -hmm. sense, and I think the business guy here could probably answer that question really easily. And it is the value proposition that relates to this unknown. 1% gave us billions and billions of dollars of therapeutics, agrochemical, cosmetics, other products. Having access to 99%, such a wealth of unknown is prospecting, but you're prospecting in the richest source on the planet. Is there risk to prospecting? Absolutely. People have prospected all over this planet to find products. We now can go to a site and with one harvest, find thousands, thousands of unknown novel small molecules that biology made through evolution to hit a target and fit a purpose that science can't grab. So there's the possibility on one harvest, we may pay for every harvest we'll ever do in the next hundred years because of the potential untapped value of quite frankly, the world's microbiomes. So, this this uh, kind of uh, you know I had this question prepared uh, about about you know whether breakthroughs come in 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 uh, in giant leaps or whether they can be achieved uh, from from uh, a series of of smaller steps, but it it does seem to me like like your particular breakthrough is 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 kind of almost a third pathway where you you take the the, the problem and just look at it from a completely different facet. 
uh, and uh, discover something that that, 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 that you, you don't need to kind of almost have a breakthrough on the in the traditional sense. You just you just bypass the problem by looking at it in a novel way. Am I kind of correctly understanding? You, you, you are absolutely on point. But what I what I will say is the breakthrough, the leap is part of the process always. I used to talk specifically about recorded media. And you could go back to the 1870s and look at the cost per, let's, let's call it a megabit of recorded media back when Edison created the phonograph. And you move that forward in time, that price per megabit did nothing but drop. But there were points with technology advancements, which were a shift. It dropped rapidly. Think of think of something like the CD. Think of something like, I mean, all throughout the life cycle in the history of recorded media, it dropped and dropped in cost per megabit. And that is exactly what happens in most technologies. It's incremental, incremental, incremental. And it's the experts that are focused on incremental that drive incremental because there's always incremental. But sometimes they stumble and sometimes it comes from outside their expertise because they're not looking narrowly. They're looking broader. So in our particular case, we were industrial processors. We were experienced with industrial scale. And you can't ask a geneticist to think about outside their focused area. You can't ask a chemist to think that way. So the reality is one of the toughest places to think broadly is life sciences. Harvard Business School did a study years ago that talked about where does innovation come from? And they showed that 50% of innovation breakthroughs come from the specialist. Hard to believe, but 50% of the innovation breakthroughs come from generalists because they look broader, not narrowly focused. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the old saying of if all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. And specialists are particularly focused on what they studied and worked in for the last 20 years. So it's really hard for them to stretch. And that's why, quite frankly, uh, teams to solve problems from multidisciplines, especially if you're looking for innovation, it's hard to bring those kind of teams together. But when you can, you've got better ideas, some stupid ideas that could turn out to be very good that come together under that kind of innovation dynamic. If it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. You got to have a team that will say there is no such thing as a stupid idea. It's it's kind of <laughs> like whacking yourself on the on the head. Uh, if, if, you've if, if, an old, if an old professor tells you that something is possible, he's most likely right. If he tells you that something is impossible, there's a good chance he's wrong. Uh, that was the <laughs> saying that my my, my 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 professor at my uni uh, was was telling me. Uh, but uh, I had a question because when you When you approach a completely new, okay, the problem from a completely new perspective, all right, uh, we are very 
process-oriented guys. So how, how did you uh, approach, like, because, you know, you have your traditional lab bench, as you mentioned, there is a guy which is in the lab code, uh, micro pipette, you know, pipetting, running PCR, some HPLC or whatever that is now used. Uh, and now you have this, I don't know, sheep or whatever it is that casts this net and collects, you said, 25 million tons of water if i calculate it, it actually works out to 20 million liters of water is our water. typical yeah. recovery so 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 20 20 million uh tons of water i see a little difference in between 10 microliters and 20 million liters so i guess the processes used to to, to purify uh one and another might also differ slightly uh but you don't do it once off. You don't just take this 20 million tons of water uh, or liters of, of water and you just, I don't know, start sieving it, um, like looking for gold. There needs to be some process. How, how did you come up with, I'm, I'm talking about the process of getting the process right. Yeah. Uh, because as you said, it, it, it's about quantity and you repeated it twice, if I counted correctly until now, quantity and quality. So to, to ensure quality, you need to have a well-defined process with very well-defined roles, responsibilities, yada, 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 on a completely different uh, yeah, solution to, to, to a known problem. How Did you use, I don't know, some lessons learned from the guys who extract, I don't know, gold from, from, from uh, seawater? Like, did you use this uh, interdisciplinarity or did you just sit with a pen and paper and said, okay, so I need Joe to actually sieve it. And then I need uh, Jenna to, I don't know, vapor, vaporize it. And then I need a team to capture the vapor. Like, you know, how, how, You're going to love the answer. You're going to love the answer. And it's not something engineers, scientists do a lot of, but think about biomimicry. Give you an example. Your heart is pumping 9,000 liters of blood through your entire body, processing it, filtering it, oxygenating, removing the CO2. And it does it on 40 watts. Now you tell me how any engineer is going to even remotely create that. There's no chance. You know, evolution had a couple billion years to actually achieve that uh, this efficiency. So, give give engineers, you know, some time, please. Yeah, they they have twenty years of experience. You're right. So, <laughs> what about what about the Douglas fir that can reach four hundred foot tall, and without a pump, it moves water from its roots four hundred feet in the air. Now. I'm sorry, but if you've ever tried to use a pump, even at five feet or 10 feet, you start running into problems immediately, but yet nature did it. So here was what happened. Many times in discovery, there's a pivot from original intention. What we were focused on was grabbing microbes out of the aquatic environment efficiently. Now, using all of the technologies in existence to pull microbes out was typically around $3,500 per ton 20 years ago. 
Now, trying to get into the low energy biofuels business, you've got to pull these microbes out that grow rather rapidly and you've got to do it efficiently. And what I looked at was, again, biomimicry. And I'm gonna to try to show something, I hope it works. I've got a drop of water on my finger. Yes, Don't know you if you can see it, but what's going on is the physics of adhesion and co-adhesion. The liquid is adhered to itself and it's adhered to me. And I can move it. And I can move it using different materials. And just mm -hmm. to our listeners who will not watching it, uh, Ross just took the droplet of water from one finger, moved it to another, and then removed it using the tissue. Now let's let's get to the conclusion. Let's dig into that. What you saw was no pressure. No pressure equates to no energy. Energy spent. At least yeah. not the energy typically used in a pressurized system. Mm -hmm. So what we learned is we created a device off of that. That device worked. We actually patented it. That was generation number one of our technology. We're now in the fourth generation, totally scaled, capable of processing millions of liters rapidly and doing so at very low pressure. And we capture 100% of the microbes, including the viruses. Now that is, that is a challenge. That uh, just for- If, if for I understand correctly with my non-expert mind, but- Much, much, much smaller than bacteria. They don't, they, they don't have much of the metabolic activity, but, but if they are, capable of capturing viruses, it means that they capture probably anything bigger. So there is not much smaller than, than, than we the leave molecules that are in the water. So we don't mm -hmm. capture salt. Salt's much, much smaller. Uh, but when you talk about biological stuff, yes, we capture the entire microbiome. Remember I'd mentioned the 40 trillion microbes that live in your gut? Now, people are not going to like this, but you've got 400 trillion phages, which are a type of virus that also live along with those bacteria. <laughs> and not all of them, not all of them are COVID, just to be clear. Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of them are very good. Uh, that's the, you know, that's the reality is remember 10 years ago, microbes were bad. Oh, we got to kill them. We got to use antibiotics. No. Your gut microbiome is so key to your health. Taking care of it's important. Yeah, we, I, I I remember the you know when we, when we we decided that we were losing the war, so we decided to take bacteria on on, on our side. Now they're the good guys. <laughs> uh, and uh, yes, Marianne. No, no, I had nothing smart uh, okay. to say. So I I I. I Kind of in in all this, uh, you 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 capture quite quite uh, obviously a, a broad spectrum of of effects, and you 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 did mention that those effects, by their very nature, are are tiny. Uh, uh, 
Dr. Marian and, and his wife, who is also a, a PhD, they, they keep telling me about that the, the main problem in life sciences nowadays is the fact that all the big effects have essentially been studied. So now uh, sci uh, life scientists are essentially hunting for, for small effects. And uh, they they're they're hunting so so broadly that you know the using p value which uh, is is uh, to 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 Mar and you can see his face it's, he hates the term uh, they, they 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 capture effects which are almost you know uh, artifacts are, it's called artifacts are artifacts of of the world. so how do you how do you then ensure that what what you do capture in this in this twenty million liters of water is actually not an artifact a, a coincidence but is actually meaningful uh, how how do you how do you see it yeah, and that's 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 something that has to be considered. So when you do the genomics on those species that are present, you will find that in an active habitat microbiome, there's only so many niches to fill. Just like in our gut microbiome, there's only so many niches to fill. Some of those species produce the same chemistry as other species. So the, the neat thing is with 400 to 1,000 species representative, if you just looked at 100 milliliters of that, everything would be an artifact. When you look at 200 million liters of that, you're going to find out what's real, what's in there in quantity, and you don't need to look at what artifacts show up because the artifacts will distinguish themselves as artifacts. Give you an example. The unfortunate person that is starting with Alzheimer's symptoms or getting to the point where maybe the chemistry, which everything ultimately goes to chemistry. We can say biology all we want. We can say microbiology. But I'm sorry, it is the actual chemistry and the molecules that actually do things. So there may be in that person a marker. That marker is in the blood, most likely. That marker may have gotten there because of microbes. They're still not sure about that yet because they can't figure that out. But if you had a fingerprint map of 14,600 small molecules that are in your blood that science doesn't know about today, what would you know about the human that you don't know about today? You might be able to say there's a marker for Alzheimer's, there's a marker for inflammation, there's a marker for heart disease, there's, and you might have a better fingerprint. When we talk about using the aquatic microbiome as a surrogate, if there was only 20,000 basically 20,000 small molecules in the aquatic microbiome that overlap to the human. That would suggest that we could uncover two more orders of magnitude than science knows today about what is in our blood. So 14,600 additional small molecules using that 73% overlap of genes and metabolic pathways. So there is a easy uncovering of knowledge in therapeutics and agrochemical that science has never tapped. And it is all about 
scale. I like to use the example. We've got brilliant analytical equipment in the chemistry lab. We have got mass spec, the uh, uh, liquid chromatography. Uh, we've got everything, HPLC, everything, but it has a resolution today. Imagine if we had to improve the resolution by one order of magnitude. It would probably cost humanity billions of dollars to get one order of magnitude improvement out of the analytical equipment. Just On to, the just other to, end just of the to, scale just, is starting just, with more. Just, just to explain to, to our non-biological uh, listeners, it's uh, when we are talking about the resolution, it's ability of the equipment to identify that, in example, there exists a given particle. So when we have equipment of long acronyms uh, mentioned by uh, by Mr. Youngs, uh, it means that let's say if you the the, the best case showing of futility of this approach was, uh, I think, recently debunked. Uh, it was a trial of getting the f complete picture of the human health from a single um, drop of blood, uh, where when, when you are listening to, 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 to Mr. Youngs, you can understand that some of these chemicals are in so small quantities in the organism that you are you cannot ensure that even a single molecule will be in the one drop of blood. And yet um, investors spend billions on this uh, shenanigan uh, and fraud, which was obvious to anyone who had some biological background. Exactly. Now, <laughs> uh, what, what uh, to my understanding is being said is that uh, there is this hunt for better equipment. So let's be able to find this one molecule in a liter of blood. Let's be able to, to, to find this one molecule. A person has five liters of blood. If your equipment is capable of detecting this single one in a liter of blood, it's not really feasible to draw enough blood. Uh, if I'm saying something which is uh, in disagreement, what you try to say, Ross, just, just, just let me know. But the, the idea is that on the one hand, it costs billions and people invested billions in imaginary machine that was supposed to uncover impossible because you would have to yeah, detect. It's, I think, homeopathy, homeopathy detection machine. Uh, I'm not a believer in homeopathy. So, so, so the idea is let's get more of these chemicals. Let's Mm, compress them, let's increase amount of molecules that we can detect, and then we can use existing equipment to actually detect what, what they, uh, that they are there. Exactly. That, that, that is exactly and precisely the issue. And it may be that in the future, in order to understand the fingerprint of the molecules in your blood, that they're going to have to take more than a drop, because one drop will never allow the ability for analytical equipment to measure it being there unless it's in a large enough quantity to show up. And there are some of those molecules you can see in a drop, but you may need 100 times that, uh, which would be viable uh, in order to then concentrate it 
to see those molecules you can't see in one drop. And, and that's part of, let's say, the future is ultimately understanding what is truly going on in a human at a given period of time in order to predict their own health future and to look at their health now. We certainly have those kind of ways to look today, but 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it may be very different. So, so Theranos was, was obviously kind of going in a completely different direction, which, which, which failed. But I, I want to, to now, now uh, ask you about kind of, you, you're a CEO, you're running a company, and uh, the, the people who work for you, they, they have to have, if I believe so, a special mindset uh, to kind of go beyond this, this traditional, let's take a molecule, let's examine it, it doesn't work, let's take a different molecule. They have to have this explora exploratory kind of uh, innovative mindset. How do you, well, firstly, how do you select such people and how do you instill them the, the passion? Because you, you speak very passionately about the the the, uh, the the process and the ideas uh, so i'm i'm always fascinated how the, the vision is actually effectively uh, incorporated into the company um one of the things is 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 certainly as a leader i have to recognize that i've got to be able to motivate and lead people i've got to inspire them i've got to have them have a level of confidence in me so it's so much about culture is our culture open and available to confront issues? Is our culture collaborative? Is our culture respectful? Um, I believe as a leader, I want people to follow me. I want people to lead. Um, I want people to take on the challenges and do it with vigor and really excitement. And I think that we've been able to find those kind of people. When you talk about the technical aspects, the beautiful thing about what we're doing, every organization out there we could potentially be working with are already very skilled at doing what they do. They just don't have what we have. So our ability to work with them and use their skills, use their capabilities, this is the advantage of being a platform. We don't want to be the pharma company. We don't want to be the agrochemical company, but we do want to bring the molecules from nature that are actually there that we discover what they do. Believe it or not, you can't patent the molecule in nature, but you can patent what it does if you discover that. And then we can improve the molecules in nature. It's called derivatization. And those molecules are patentable along with their activity. So everything Biosortia will be doing will be creating a massive IP powerhouse in the life science area. But we're going to count on working with the experts that know how to create products. We're their partner in discovery. Oh, this is this is fascinating, and uh, so. If if I'm I'm kind of thinking about you know if I if 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 I go to 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 to, to someone and say you know what I want to d discover what's 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 happening in your gut so I'm going to to, to filter twenty million liters of seawater and 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 try to connect the dots uh, it's it's 
it 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 really is the the, the kind of lateral thinking almost that uh, it 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 does it does require this 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 leap leap of faith almost to 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 put to put forward right i i would like i would like to ask about this leap of faith because uh i'm thinking because we are trying in our podcast to to to, to be a, a bit practical and and generalists as you uh, as you said like from your perspective you, you you took on a problem which required uh yeah immense scalability and you just look at it from a completely different perspective you created a, a team involving both i guess genetists and um, and engineers like let's say we hope that our, our our listeners would like to 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 learn something from you and if they work in you know ceos in a big corps or or or, or senior managers like uh they have their own problems and Sometimes they would like to, to to scale up their operations, or they would like to to identify um, ways to surpass these bottlenecks. Uh, other than okay, collect some interdisciplinary team and let them run loose. Uh, like, what would be your your advice? Because again, there is a team where nobody says something is stupid, but it's also a good way to waste a lot of money when there is no reality check check in the, in the meantime so how do you, how do you balance the the risks associated with the completely new approach with potential you know gain and how do you make it work because what you did and what is absolutely amazing is you made it work i've seen dozens of stupid ideas which never had a chance to work and they never worked and other hundreds of stupid ideas that had chance to work but somehow they failed to you know to come to fruition so what would be your take on structuring the work of such a team and you know monitoring them maybe i don't know if they require monitoring but if they do like you as a ceo you have you know this gigantic problem and you need completely different solution what how do you make sure that people are not running around burning money left and right that that that, that i love as a question i'm going to answer the first chemistry question first so we look at the world of chemistry and the world of biology today. Was it studying the human that learned everything in chemistry and everything in biology? And the answer is certainly no. We studied lots of other things and then could relate it to the human. So we're in a position that we can certainly study biology of single cell organisms which evolved into everything and live in us and produce a lot of the molecules. So that's the connection there, is we don't have to study the human to learn about the human, except for maybe to connect the dots. The second thing about motivation and understanding and problem solving, I think when you have the right mindset and the right team and the right leadership, and leadership is actually shared and flat. But a leader has to make a flat organization. If you expect a guy or woman at the top to make all the decisions, everyone looks to that person and says, this is how we're going to progress. But if you make the organization flat and you make the individuals that are involved in an organization fearless, I can say anything I want to say to that boss 
because I'm told by that boss, that's what's expected of me. Then all of a sudden you have the kind of collaboration, the kind of challenge of an issue. And you have to have some guidance around that. A guidance would be, you can confront any issue at any time. You don't confront the individual. You don't confront their ideas. You confront what is in front of you that is safe to confront. So I think that again goes back to culture. And I think you've got to be able to look at serious problems with the team and with the team of people that are directly involved. Deming taught us that years and years ago. Your best solutions are going to come from the people that are dealing with the problems day in and day out. And if you ignore what they say, you're not going to make progress as a company. And I think it works that way when you build a team. Now, if you've got an innovation team, you've got to treat that team like that. You don't want one person walking into the room of an innovation team and going, here's what we're going to do to solve this problem. You want this person, even if they already know what they want to do. And that's key to get everyone else aligned because they also thought that's the best thing to do. Because then you've got shared risk, you've got the capability to solve problems by a team and nobody is uninvested. That's the key thing about innovation and any teamwork, whether it's running a company, running a manufacturing, doing research. And the problem is in a lot of life sciences, we put people on a pedestal that says they know everything. We've got to wait for them to solve the problem. That's wrong. Uh, so this is, uh, I mean, this, this touches on a very important subject, which we, we, we always kind of uh, like to touch upon in our podcast, and that is accountability. Because uh, you, you, uh, you, you have this flat organization, and, but then, then you need to appoint accountability where it really should be uh, assigned, and it, it needs to be assigned in a very specific, very clear way within the risk envelope. I'm a risk guy. I, I love kind of talking about, about risk. So you have to enable people to make the correct decisions uh, and meaningful decisions, but within a safe envelope so they know they're very clear what kind of what advantages, but also what disadvantages they are facing in order to 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 progress. So you, how how did you structure this so that so that it 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 worked for you? So in our in our companies in our company, uh, we have a set of agreed guiding principles. So it becomes the basis of our culture. Underneath the guiding principles is what is called cognitive distortions. So what creates misbehavior in the organization is not understanding the difference between acceptable behavior and unacceptable behavior. So let's take agreement. I'm going to say to Joe, I want you to do this and I want you to have it done by tomorrow at noon. Where's the agreement? In our culture, that is not an agreement. I may be the boss, and if I say that to somebody, I'm an idiot of a boss. 
If I say to Joe, Joe, here's what we think we need to get done. Can you agree with that? Would you take on the responsibility of getting it done by noon tomorrow? And Joe says, yes. And then I confirm with him, Joe, you've just agreed to do this by noon tomorrow. We're on the same page. I may even put it in an email. That's called a shared agreement. That's an agreement. In organizations, you've got people walking around wondering why their agreements aren't met every single day. How come you didn't do what I said for you to do? Oh, I didn't know you needed it by tomorrow. That is one of the biggest issues in organizations. They can't even define what an agreement is. And that's critical. <laughs> yes, and we agree. <laughs> we are in, in, in agreement. And uh, there's, there's, there's also the, you know, the, the issue which I, I wanted to touch upon kind of, uh, because in, in such broad exploration that, that, that you discussed, there is also a, a probably a huge amount of uh, blind alleys that you explore, right? And uh, in, with that agreement, to, to do something, to achieve something. I believe there has to be a fairly broad kind of allowance to fail, but fail in a meaningful way that you, you kind of, you fail with having learned something, you know, as, as uh, I don't remember who said it, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't fail. I just found a thousand ways that it didn't work. Thomas says, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're 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 exactly right. So risk should be quantified. Now, if you're in the biotechnology world, whether you start with what is considered pre-optimized by nature, which has a higher probability of success, or start with something completely synthetic or man-made, the one has much higher rates of success than the other. So the average rate is one in 29 biotechnology companies will succeed. Do I want to be a biotechnology company? No. <laughs> I want to be a platform that works with 400 organizations simultaneously. So I'm changing the numerator from one in 29 to 429. So I can work with academic on trying to solve their problems. I can work with biotech. I can work with pharma. I can work with ag chemical. I can work with grants with national labs. The reality of it is this is not a biotech with a one in 29. This is a platform of a real business with a real probability of success that is 429. I'll take those odds any day. <laughs> so yeah it 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 pretty much i think it spells out if you don't like the odds redefine the problem until until the odds are very much in your favor and uh, then tackle that problem because uh, that's a reasonable yeah, business attitude i would say <laughs> <laughs> i actually am not a risk taker it's and, like you know the house the house the, the house always wins you want to be a house that's i want to be the house I want to be the house. Exactly. Show me the cards before we play them. And I know I'm going to lose a hand, but I'm going to win hands as well.
Exactly. It's <laughs> like, you know, as long as people will play your hands, it's like. <laughs> and we're excited about this prospect. We think that some of the first companies we ultimately signing, sign deals with, where they use our technology to solve their problems, they're, we're going to make them very, very happy. We're going to help fill their pipeline with new potential products. And some of those won't make it. Some of them will. They take those risks every day and they do so happily. And if 28 out of 29 won't make it, unless, you know, if they will be using your help, probably their chances will be higher. But let's, let's be generous. It, still, it's, you know, one out of 29 will, will, will keep you happy. I love the, the, you know, back scratching, uh, like, you know, you scratch mine, I scratch yours. You're yeah, happy. I, I, I want my customers to be winners and I want my customers Absolutely. to sign a five-year, five-asset deal with me. They come back and go, we're going to do a 10-year, 10-year asset or 10-year, 10-asset. Yeah. No, got to have happy customers. And, and I, think, I think that we've got first mover advantage in what will be the dominant way to uncover new products 10 years from now. And it may be possible that mining the microbiomes of the world create most new products in life sciences in as little as 10 years from now. It is, from my experience in big pharma and in biotech, it is possible, like the, the scale that, that was described here is uh, speaking to my heart. It's, it's something that was very much needed. The ability to, to quickly process a lot of uh, possible um, molecules. I, don't, I didn't want to use this word because it's very biological, because it also translates to, to, other, to other fields. It's, uh, I, I don't know, when we talk about the customers, you have billions of customers and you have cor corporations which deal with billions of customers. There's a wealth of data. And in, in, the, in this time, this molecule is a sort of a data point. It's like it has some influence. Like you, if you analyze it properly, uh, you can get to some interesting conclusions. And uh, for me, it's a very data-related uh, data related, uh, issue. So I believe that uh, this example that uh, Ross presented to us is uh, well worth thinking about in different business contexts. It's not only about finding yourself an ocean and trying to grab a bucket of water and hoping you'll find the gold inside or a small molecule or six. Uh, it's about, oh, I love this word, paradigm shift. Uh, so <laughs> thinking a bit outside outside of the box, but still, you know, remembering the box is there and you need to, to, to at some point, get back to to. to and this box, I, I mean, this companies, this twenty-nine companies, which will be getting the content of your of your of your stuff. They, they are little boxes. They don't need to change. You do completely different thing, but you arrive to them with with a proposition that they don't need to change to be able to accept. And I think it's a, it's a pretty pretty good uh, thinking about completely new products. Like you, your clients don't need to change. To accept your product, exactly. you have a completely new, 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 new way of, of doing stuff, and you like, you just took it from a different shelf. It's like never lied 
next to the old stuff. But your clients, you know, you you, you give them the same the same food they they, they love and like, and you know, it's like the the interesting thing about what we can provide to our customers on day one, we'll have a small bit of data. On day one thousand we're going to have an unbelievable data set connecting dots. On day 10,000, it may be unimaginable what information is in that data. Because if we test a molecule for agrochemical and it gets a hit, and that same molecule gets tested in therapeutics and it gets a hit, all of a sudden you're learning things about molecules that aren't typically known. The fact that we can connect it back to the genomics of the source and the metabolic pathways, the data that we will ultimately generate will be massive and usable. It will be real usable information. I'll give you an example. Recently, they went and looked at approved drugs to find antiviral activity, and they computationally did it because they had the structures. And they were able to find, I think it was about 15 molecules that they should test against COVID and other antivirals. And they found some winners that are now moving forward. And that was just from the knowledge base that existed. Imagine how we exponentially change the knowledge base as we exponentially find and characterize new molecules. We all remember Moore's law, Moore's law mm -hmm. about data. Mm -hmm. I believe uncovering novel molecules in biology could follow the path of Moore's law for decades and decades. There is a lot of to learn, that's for sure. Okay. Well, this I I I I'm almost kind of uh, because this this is fascinating. I, I regret having to say that this is this is all all that we have time for uh, because there's there's such a wealth of information to be to 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 be uncovered here. Uh, thank you very much, Ross, for for uh, agreeing to 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 be with us here and share, sharing this because this is this is I think applicable in so so much broader context. Uh, so I think. You know, as, as we always, thank you. And as we always say, let's hope it's useful to someone. Thank you for listening. As usual, we'd like to recommend some additional sources. Check out Future of Field Service podcast with Sarah Nicastro to hear first-hand perspective of how business leaders are evolving, innovating and overcoming. If you're interested in strategies that help iconic CEOs from Nike to Netflix, Starbucks to Slack, grow from startups into global brands, check out Reid Hoffman's Masters of Scale podcast. As usual, all the links to the references will be available in the notes to this episode. Also, don't miss the next one, where we will be talking about creating a very focused product using delocalized teams to discuss with us a practical case study of managing hundreds of people from all over the world, we've invited Aldi Agai, founder and CEO of AAK Telescience. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or visit bdr.show to find out more about these future episodes and guests. You can also check out cognition.llc for more information on Cognition Shared Solutions, our services and other events hosted by us. For now, it's thank you from myself, your friendly neighborhood data guy, Dr. Marian Siwiak, and my co-host, Artur Buja. 
Thank you. <laughs>